We are in Judges chapter 9. We've been making our way through the book of Judges. If you have been here with us, you would, you would have followed along as we went through Gideon the last couple of weeks. But one of the awful things about making our way through Judges is that it gets progressively worse. You know, you, you go and watch a good movie or something and, and usually there's some kind of resolution where things get better, where the trial is overcome, where the good guys win or, or something like that. Whereas that doesn't really happen here. We get these, it's an episodic kind of book. Here's the next episode. Here's the next thing that happens. And we kind of neatly chop them up into chapters so that we can look at them. But it gets progressively worse more and more terrible as time goes on. We started out with Othniel, and he was kind of this picture of what a good judge should be like. He, he came from a faithful family. He delivered Israel. He, he had an, a, an excellent wife who was thinking about inheritance and, and living long in the land. And, but it kind of all went downhill from there. They had, after all, as a nation, they'd come into this, this country called Canaan, um, also called the Promised Land, and uh, rough, not, not really, but it's the same place that the modern state of Israel is now. It's that area, but it was, it, the boundaries are a little bit different from uh, back in the day. But God had given His people Israel a promise that, I'll save you from Egypt, we'll enter it into a covenant, you can have this promised land, this special place for you to live, but here's the catch. It's not really a catch, but it, there was already living there Canaanite tribes. Now, when we start hearing about, uh, you know, there was people already living there and God was going to kick those people out, we start thinking, oh, you know, colonization, genocide, that kind of thing. But what we have here is not a case of an innocent bunch of people who were just minding their own business and then God kicks them out. No, this was rebellious people. These were wicked and evil people. And God had let them live there. He had been merciful to them and abstained from judging them for many hundreds of years. Before the Israelites went into Egypt, God said that their sin is not yet complete. Like, they haven't finished, <laughs> He hasn't withstood as enough of their sin yet before He would kick them out. But then, when God liberated Israel from Egypt entered into a covenant with them, brought them up to the promised land, it was time for the Canaanites to go. And God said, don't marry them, don't worship their gods, don't keep any of their stuff. In many cases, they were just to destroy everything, get rid of it all. And he would go with them and lead them and settle them in a special promised land where he would live with them. And we had some great strides, great progress under Joshua. Joshua led them into the land and they had huge, uh, some great campaigns where they had a lot of victory. And as Joshua died, the, basically the charge was, keep doing that. Keep pushing out the bad guys, keep pushing them away, keep getting rid of everything that stands against God, and keep taking your inheritance that God has given you. And that's where we came into the judges. But things have not gone according to plan. Things have not got better. They have not remained faithful. They did start intermarrying with the other tribe, with the other uh, nations around them. They did 
start worshipping their gods. They did get mixed in with them. They kept some of their stuff that they should have destroyed. And as this progress process goes on and on and on, what we find is that God's people look less and less like God's people and more and more like the Canaanites that they were supposed to drive out. And the chapter that we're into now is where this was really coming into its own. It's really starting to become obvious just how far the people have fallen. We're coming here uh, in the wake of Gideon. Um, Gideon was a judge raised up by God. He was a judge who had God's spirit in him. He was a judge who delivered God's people. But Gideon left a mixed legacy. Gideon's legacy, as we're going to see in his son Abimelech, was there a murderous usurper. You see, Gideon's legacy was uh, mixed because he had done so many great things. He had risked his life and everything that he had to overthrow altars and to, to, to attack the Midianite army. God had used him wondrously and Gideon had done a great job in many respects. But it's mixed, right? Because he also set up an idolatrous worship center in his hometown. He also uh, said, I'm not going to be king, all the while doing kingly things like taking a tax and accruing a harem. And he had a bunch of different kids by different women, including a concubine in another city. He was called Jerubal, that was his nickname, Jerubal, which means let Baal, as in the, the storm god of the Canaanites, let Baal contend against him. And we see that uh, he, this was kind of a, a fun nickname because he lived a, a happy long life, right? He lived for many years. He'd been given this nickname, let Baal contend against him because he'd torn down one of Baal's altars. And yet, Baal obviously was defenseless against Gideon because he lived a happy life in his own home. It's, Baal was useless. Baal was defenseless to take on this one guy who tore down his altar. Baal was useless against one man doing God's will. So there's this mixed legacy. And we were introduced at the end of the last chapter to this bloke named Abimelech. Abimelech means my father is king. And now for a guy who says, oh, I won't be your king, it's kind of weird to name your son, my father is king. But Abimelech is the main focus of this chapter. Abimelech from a place called Shechem. Now, it's unclear if Shechem was an Israelite town, whether it was a mixed setup, quite possibly, or whether it was just a kind of Canaanite peoples or other peoples living there. But we suspect that it's not Israelites, by the way that they're spoken about in the story, the way that they kind of pit themselves against other people in Israel, it kind of looks like they're not Israelites. And if that is the case, we have to wonder again about Gideon and go, hang on a sec, why does he have a concubine amongst people who are not God's people? God specifically told the Israelites not to intermarry with the people who belong to other gods. And so maybe Gideon thought he was kind of meeting the letter of the law by just saying, oh, she's a concubine, she's not, we're not really married. An exclusive sexual relationship between a man and a woman is part of God's idea of what marriage is meant to be. 
And yet here it's perverted so that wealthy men would take these women and enjoy the, the physical benefits of marriage, but these poor women would not be given the same status or privilege as their proper wives. They were kind of second-class wives. And I think it was just a simple way to try and skirt God's law. It kind of reminds me of how uh, the Amish, they have the rules about what they can and can't do because it's too worldly, but they'll pay other people to do the worldly stuff. Well, I can't drive a car, but somebody can drive me in a car. It's kind of like getting around the, the letter of the rule without, well, breaking the spirit of it. I think that's what happens with these people who would take concubines. And in particular, I think if this uh, town, this Shechemite town, Shechem town of Shechem was not Israelite, then uh, I think Gideon was disobeying God's law specifically on intermarrying. So Abimelech, his, this, the fruit of this relationship with this lady, unnamed lady uh, in Shechem, is the focus of this chapter. But Abimelech is not a judge. Ordinarily, so far, we've kind of just, it's judge after judge after judge, but here we get the focus on a character who is not a judge. And what do I mean by that? The judges are those who are raised up by God to deliver Israel. Abimelech is not raised up by God, and he does not deliver Israel. And unlike other characters, most of the other characters that we've come across in Israel so far, he has no redeeming features. There's nothing about Abimelech that we can raise up and go, oh, isn't he a good example on this front? It is all bad news all the way through. What Abimelech does is he tries to claim the throne. And that ambiguity around the fact of whether or not Gideon was really acting as a king has led Abimelech to think that there is a kingship position up for grabs. Now that my dad's dead, I'm going to take the throne. And he knows that all of his brothers could be contenders for this throne. And so he hatches a plan to make things go his own way. This uh, reads just like the plot of any old um, period piece drama. You know, the underdog heir wants to take the throne and so he's got a devious relative who's going to pull some strings to try and make it work. But unfortunately, instead of just taking out one or two pretenders or contenders for the throne, he's got to take out... 70 of his own siblings. Sure, they were, probably, they were half siblings, but nevertheless, they were his own siblings. In a, in, from verse 1, it says, Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I'm your bone and flesh. So he's playing the relative card. Look, I'm your relative. You've got to look out for me. We're on the same side. We should stick together. I'm your flesh and blood. So you should support me in my, plead, um, in my desire to, to take the lead. But have you noticed the irony here? He's playing on the fact that they're his blood relatives to get them to support him so that he can kill his blood relatives it's it, it's like why would you trust somebody on the basis that they're your relative so that you can help them against their relatives it's like when when people who cheat on their spouses get together and they leave one spouse to and then they make a commitment in marriage to the new spouse after they've just 
like cheated. Like it's they did it there. What's to stop them doing it here? Why would you why would you play into that? Why would you trust them on this side but not on that side? And if Shechem isn't an Israelite town, this shows that this half-Israelite Gideon is... Sorry, if it is an Israelite town, this shows Israelites fighting against Israelites, brother against brother. But even if it wasn't, you know, Gideon is still half an Israelite. He's the son of, of Gideon. Sorry, Abimelech. I'm getting my words all mixed up here. Abimelech is still half Israelite. But the people, they agree, let's go along with Abimelech, he's our flesh and blood, let's help him try and take the throne. They then spread the word throughout the city, the city says, yes, we'll get on board with you, and they give him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-Bareth, which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers on the sun, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. So, at the end of the last chapter, we were told that the Israelites had turned away to this god, Baal Barith, Lord of the Covenant, and they were mixed up with the worship of that, of that god. Maybe they thought that their god, Yahweh, whom they had entered into a covenant with, was somehow connected. Maybe they thought, oh, it's a different name for the same god, but scriptures make it clear that this was a different god that they were worshipping. And so this temple to this, this god, Baal Barith, they take some of the funds from that temple to support Abimelech's campaign. They give him a bunch of money and then he goes and uses that to hire a bunch of thugs. What for? So he could go and kill his family. So he could go and commit fratricide. I looked it up, that is a word. Fratricide, he killed his siblings because, merely because of who their father was. Merely because of who they were related to. And so isn't it interesting that this town, Shechem, is the, is the place where this happens. Because Shechem is where Joshua gave his famous speech. You know the one. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And there at Shechem, they entered into a renewal. They, they had a covenant renewal ceremony where they re-pledged themselves to God and the covenant they had entered into. And here is this location where they're serving a, a different God of a covenant and they're using the funds from his temple to then kill God's people. They killed 70 sons on one stone. Now, if you start doing the maths here, they killed 70 sons on one stone, but Jotham escaped and Abimelech was there. And so if we add that up, that's actually 72 sons. So I think when they say the 70 sons of Gideon, they're talking as a round number. I don't think you're meant to go. There was literally 72 sons. They're just talking in a round number. They killed the whole lot except for Jotham and Abimelech. Abimelech then is crowned king in Shechem and in Beth Milo. So he's probably not yet kind of, a, he's not a king over all of Israel in the way that we might think of 12 tribes of Israel, but he is at least a king over two, two cities. So he has some regional influence. They have made him king. 
So here we have a man whose loyalty to Yahweh is questionable, who has no right to the throne, but made himself a king by scheming in murder. And this leaves us hungering for a better king, a better leader, who doesn't kill innocents to gain power, who is loyal to God all the way through, and one who has the right to rule God's people. And God would give his people that king. God would give his people that king through David. Now, I know you're expecting me to say Jesus, but before we get to Jesus, we go through David. David was that king that, they, that judges leaves us in expectation of, but even David himself is an expect, leaves us in expectation of an even greater one who is Jesus. So David would be the one who wouldn't kill innocents to gain power. David would be the one who is loyal to God all the way through. He is the one who gets the right to rule from God himself. And then Jesus, his descendant, would have all of those things as well. Jesus would, would be the greater and better David, the greater and better king that would leave Abimelech in the dust. In the next section, we see Jotham's parable, and we're left wondering, well, sorry, we're given the, a, a question, an option. Is there, will there be curse or will there be blessing? Jotham's parable, curse or blessing? So Jotham obviously escaped. He heard that Abimelech had been made king. So he comes back and he climbs up on Mount Gerizim. He was told to Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So he's, he's afraid for his life. So that's why he's on the top of Mount Gerizim. So he can speak to them and make a quick getaway before they come and attack him. But he has something to say to them. He has this parable of the trees. And it was a bit much to fit on some slides, so I might just read out the parable, um, if I can find it. Uh, so chapter 9, verse 8. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which... Both gods and humans are honoured and hold sway over the trees. Next, the tree said to the fig, come and be our tree, uh, king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to sway, hold, hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So he, he sells this parable to highlight the kind of absurdity of it all. In a similar way to when Nathan comes to King David and tells him a story that has a moral ending that implies, uh, you know, kind of exposes what David had done with Bathsheba. But here, um, Jotham's parable about the trees kind of exposes the ridiculousness of what they had done in putting Abimelech as their ruler. And the kind of crux of it is what the, what the bramble says, what, the, uh, what the, the thorn bush says. He says, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. This is a thorn bush. 
around here we have lots of uh, kind of those mulberry bushes, not mulberries, um, what are they called? Blackberry, the blackberry stuff. That kind of, think of that stuff, thorny stuff, awful, hard to um, kind of use and untangle and, and grows wild and not great for shade. If you want somewhere for shade, you don't go looking for a blackberry bush. And so the ridiculousness of it here is he's saying to these other trees, which are proper trees, come and take refuge in my sh- shade if you really legitimately want me to be your king. It's, like, it's, it's impossible. There is no shade. There is no way that they could demonstrate that this is a legitimate right way to go. It's impossible for them to demonstrate their good faith. And then the bramble has this arrogant uh, turn of phrase. He says, if, if you're not legitimate, then let fire come out of the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. And th- for those people, the kind of the greatest trees that they could think of, the, the biggest, the best, the strongest, the most ideal for making stuff out of, were the cedars of Lebanon. They were, they were well-renowned all over that region. The cedars of Lebanon were the best and greatest trees. And in this parable, the bramble says, you know, I'll let fire come out and consume the, the biggest and best of the trees. He's, he's, a, he's a thorn bush. And he's saying this, it's, it just exposes this kind of pride and arrogance of the bramble. But of course, what he's doing here is exposing the pride and arrogance, both of the people of the silliness of the people of Shechem and Beth Milo and the arrogance of Abimelech. And he holds out at the end a curse or a blessing. He asks them, if you did this the right way, then you should be blessed. If you did this the wrong way, you should be cursed. And the interesting thing is, Jotham is doing this from the top of Mount Gerizim. Does anybody know why pronouncing blessings and curses from Gerizim is interesting? When Israel came into the promised land, they split in half and they put half the tribes on one mountain and half the tribes on Mount Gerizim and they pronounced the blessings and the curses of the covenant. So half of Israel stood on Mount Gerizim and pronounced the blessings of the covenant of belonging to God. And here, many years later, is Jotham standing on Mount Gerizim pronouncing blessings and cursings. Jotham's curse, a blessing or curse, says, if you've acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubal and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and let the fire come out of the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So basically he says, look, if you've done the right thing by Abimelech, Gideon and his family, then all the best to you, blessings to you. But if you haven't, then he pronounces this curse of their mutual destruction, that one of them would destroy the other and then the other destroy him. So the fire would go both ways. They would mutually destroy one another. It reminds me of the proverb, Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. We, we talked about this last week, that the way of the treacherous is that they will be destroyed by treachery. It is 
It's like when you sow wheat seed, what do you get? You get wheat. That's what grows from what you sow. Whatever you seed you plant is what you harvest. And these guys sow in treachery and rebellion. And so, as we will see, they get treachery and rebellion in return. Now, this curse that Jotham pronounces is in a sense a prediction of the normal order of God's world that will come to pass, as many of the Proverbs are. If you build your house on a floodplain, then expect it to be flooded. I thought that would uh, be relevant uh, this week especially. Not trying to take anybody, um, be be um, mean to anybody. I'm just saying that what we expect, as Jesus says, if you build your house on sand, then it will collapse. If you build a relationship on violence and conniving, then it will be undone on violence and conniving. And so Jotham's curse is not a magic spell. It's not like when you pronounce a curse that somehow God is uh, required to fulfill it, as if this is some unbreakable thing. But Jotham is pronouncing almost a prayer that God would undo Abimelech, repay him for his deeds, that he would bring him down. But with that, Jotham legs it into hiding. And Jotham reminds us of another man who stood on a mountain, a greater man who would come after him, a son who would, the powers of the day would drive into hiding because their rule was threatened. You remember how King Herod tried to kill all the babies and Jesus was sent down into Egypt to get away from the bloodshed. Jotham reminds us of a faithful son who would stand up on a mountain and boldly proclaim the truth. One who would preach a sermon on the mount. Jotham reminds us of a faithful son of God who would pronounce blessings and curses like, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This was a son who would not only proclaim the truth of the wickedness of the leaders of that day, he wouldn't run away though, unlike Jotham. He wouldn't run into hiding, but instead would give himself over to those people who wanted to take his life. But in so doing, he had the power to bring about salvation for God's people. He delivered God's people from the oppression of Satan's sin and death by handing himself over. Next, we see God's intervention. God sends an evil spirit. We didn't read this this section. So you might be starting to have to do some recalibration in your mind right now, going, hang on a sec. Does it really say that? If you look, you will see in chapter 9, verse 22, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Now, before you start freaking out, this is not God perpetrating evil. This is not God doing something that is morally repugnant. What God is doing here in the Old Testament Sometimes the word evil is used in the sense of bad. It's not in the sense of uh, morally uh, bad, morally wrong. It's in this, you, we might talk about, for instance, a, a natural disaster might be described as evil. 
I think in the Ecclesiastes, sometimes it will talk about the evil day. So it's talking about the bad day, or when everything goes wrong, when things are coming undone. And so contextually, that's what we're talking about here. God sent a spirit that would bring about the breaking down of this relationship. And this happens a few times in the Bible. You might be surprised, actually, how often it happens. Sometimes it seems to happen when a a spirit being comes to God and says, hey, can I do this? And God says, yes. Uh, Sometimes, for instance, with David, sorry, Saul, when Saul's going crazy, God sent a spirit to, um, a harmful spirit to Saul. But this is not God doing evil. It's not God perpetrating evil. This is, and the idea of this as a spirit isn't necessarily, it could be a literal spirit being that God has sent to, for this purpose, with a mission to cause this dysfunction and bring the downfall of the house of Abimelech. But it can also be metaphorical, you know, the spirit, that there is something that, um, you know, he's causing some disunity causing the strife, the ill will and division without an actual spirit being. But either way, this is God acting to bring about Jotham's curse. And this provides for us what we needed to know about whether or not Abimelech had done the right thing. I don't think we were in any doubt, but the fact that what's happening is the curse side of Jotham's parable just points out the fact that Abimelech was in the wrong and the people of Shechem were in the wrong. They did act with faithlessness. They did the wrong thing, if that wasn't already clear. So what is God doing? The violence, uh, that he sends this Holy Spirit, sorry, not Holy Spirit, this harmful spirit, this evil spirit, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So we have have God bringing about the cause of the curse to make sure that Abimelech gets repaid in kind for what he did. God is rewarding Abimelech according to what he has done, and rewarding Shechem for what they have done, because God is just. God repays us for what we have done, either in this life or in the life to come. But God's world runs on God's order. And so even when, even if we take eternity out of the picture, we can have confidence that things will run in a certain order. And that's one of the things that the Proverbs really highlights is God's order of how the world works. You sow one way, you get what you sow. If I could summarize the Proverbs in one in one line, if you seek wisdom, you'll get wisdom. If you don't seek wisdom, you won't get wisdom. It's part of God's order. And part of God's order is that the evil are brought low. Evil people are overthrown. Their schemes come to nothing. It might look like their schemes are running well for a time. It might look like they are untouchable. But eventually, one way or another, they will have their downfall. And as I said, if not in this life, definitely in the life to come and God does this work through providence as we're going to see in the next bit of the story as it unfolds God you're not seeing kind of magical things happening you're not seeing extraordinary things happening 
You're seeing regular people doing regular, ordinary human things, and God is working through that in order to achieve His purposes. And that's what happens in our lives. God works through ordinary people doing ordinary human things to achieve His purposes. So as much as we love it when we hear about amazing, extraordinary, miraculous things happening, yes, we celebrate God, we praise Him for that, but we also celebrate God and praise Him for the ordinary things that He is doing through His people, through the ordinary means of grace that we celebrate together as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we pray, as we, as we sit under God's Word and His work in our life over months and years God is providentially at work. God is providentially at work in our families. And we should thank Him and rejoice in that. But when God sets about to bring down the wicked, that happens. The Bible is full of the examples of the wicked getting their comeuppance. And it says even in the Psalms, it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And we can trust that God means that when he says it. We don't need to doubt. When we look out in the world and we see all the wickedness that goes on, we see the arrays, uh, the forces of the world arrayed against God or arrayed against his people, their pride, their arrogance like Abimelech, we can trust. The Lord knows the ways of his righteous, but the ways of the wicked will perish. But here's where we need to take a, a pause and say, hang on, how do you know who's in which camp? Who's in the righteous camp and who's in the wicked camp? Well, we might take a step back and we go, well, we can just look at the moral you know, requirements of what is good and what is bad. Those who live in a morally good way, make good choices, they are the righteous. They're living a righteous life. Those who are choosing to rebel against God and His ways, they are wicked. Those who do what is morally repugnant, morally wrong, ethically wrong, whatever words you want to use who sin, they are the wicked. And at first glance, we might like to think that we are in the righteous camp. You know, I try to live a good life. I try to do the right thing. You know, I like to give a bit of money to charities and be nice to people, smile at them at the checkout. But that's not what puts you in God's good books. God, God wants from you perfect righteousness. God is perfect in full in righteousness and he made a humanity that was perfectly righteous. And he wants us to live perfectly before him. And so what that means, the thing about perfection is that it only takes one mark in order for it not to be perfect anymore. It only takes one piece of damage. If you, um, I don't know, you make, make a painting or something and it's perfect in every way. It only takes one scratch in order for it not to be perfect anymore. And the thing is that you and I have gone and put all kinds of scratches over the image of God in our lives. We have gone and messed it right up. We are not perfect. And the thing about the scratches is that they don't come out. You can't just buff them out. We can't undo it. We can't undo the damage that we have done by sinning against God. But God did make a way that things can be made right. 
God made a way that he could restore the image of God in us to its fullness of its perfection. And he does that in and through Jesus Christ. And so for each and every one of us here today, we can be the righteous, but not because of what we can muster up in and of ourselves, because we can't overcome the sin. Even if we could have like a 50-50 and kind of weigh the balance and have more good in our life than, than, than bad, we would still not be fully righteous because of all the bad. It only takes one sin in your whole life to put you in the wicked camp. But in and through Jesus Christ, you can get the fullness of God's righteousness. It can be given to you as a free gift if you would but come to Him, repent and believe and put your faith and trust in Jesus and He will give you His righteousness, something that you could never get for yourself, something that you can never earn. And He will just give it to you as His free gift. He is that merciful. He is that gracious. He is that kind. But it has to be on His terms, not your own. You can't just say, yes, I'll have a bit of Jesus in my life and then go about as if He didn't matter. You need to be loyal to Him. You need to be committed over to Him. God can save even people like Abimelech. And as we read in Acts before, God can save people like the very people who cried for the crucifixion of Jesus. If there is anything that is horrible and awful, one of the worst acts in history, it would be the crucifixion of God in Jesus. And yet even they can find grace and mercy with our Lord. None of us are beyond the grace of God. The ways of the wicked will perish. And so if you have any hope of not perishing, you need to come and find your righteousness in Jesus Christ. In our last section, we have the story of how it all works out. With God's repayment of Abimelech's, what, if we could put it this way, what Abimelech sowed, he reaps with this shameful end. I'm just going to... This, it's a rather long section of a story. And so what I'm just going to do is kind of talk you through it briefly, what happens, so that you can see how it all works out. God is going to accomplish his purpose. Um, so there's this, this fella named Gaal, the son of Ebed. He moved into Shechem with his relatives and the leaders of Shechem. The, the leaders of Shechem put their confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and they held a festival and they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. So Abimelech's been ruling as king for three years. They have a harvest festival and there's this new bloke who's moved to town named Gaal and his family and he's getting in, he's getting all buddy-buddy with the leaders of Shechem. They have a harvest festival and while they're all drinking and getting drunk um, in their local temple, they start basically bad-mouthing Abimelech. But here's the thing. Abimelech has a mate. He has an insider in the town. And he reports to Abimelech what has happened. But the irony of the thing that's happening here is that Gaal's kind of doing the same thing that Abimelech did. He's getting all buddy-buddy with the leaders of the town. He's trying to stir them up to overthrow the leaders of the day. 
he's going to, his downfall is going to be, or their downfall is going to be by the same method that they got into this situation in the first place. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. Um, and so the story goes, Abimelech gets his insider to try and help them get the drop on them. So early one morning, Gaal's out there looking at the fields and going, oh, it looks like there's people coming down from the mountains. And Abimelech says, oh no, you're just seeing things. And then, oh, it looks like there's people coming from that direction. And then the guy says, now, do you, are you glad that you basically reviled Abimelech? And so then Abimelech's forces all attacked. And they just, they killed everybody they could. They, Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and they fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. So they chased them back to the city, killed as many as they could. Then the strange thing is, the next day, the city from the city, they think that all the battle's all over and done with. So they open the gates and they go out into the fields like normal while Abimelech and his forces are still hanging around. And so Abimelech and his forces attack them and, and kill a whole bunch of them. Some of them flee to the Tower of Shechem. I, I think it must be in a slightly different spot. But there's this place called the Tower of Shechem. They fled. Um, yeah. Yeah. They fled to this Tower of Shechem and Abimelech has an idea. How am I going to get rid of all these people who are in this f kind of fortified tower? He and the, his forces all head off into the scrub. They chop down a bunch of timber, wood, um, uh, cut, cut down a bundle, and then they're following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. So this was his kind of revenge against them, in the end, remember what this revenge was for. It was for them bad-mouthing him. They hadn't actually taken up arms against him. This was just them whinging and complaining about Abimelech. And this is what he does to them. This isn't the kind of king that I want. And so all these people lose their lives. All the people of the town of Shechem. All the people in the tower of Shechem. So the people of Shechem get their comeuppance. It looks like Abimelech's avoiding God's curse. Look, he didn't, oh sorry, Jotham's curse. He survived this battle. He was the victor in this case. He's been reigning for three years. But then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city. Hang on, I just read this bit, didn't I? No, this is a different city with a different stronghold in it. And all the men and women, all the leaders of the city fled into it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near the door to tower to what? Burn it with fire. So he's like, this worked before. I'm going to do it again. But this would be his downfall. As he rushes up to try and do the same tactic again, destroy the tower, a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they save me. A woman killed him. And this young man thrust him through and he died. Now, it's, that, it's like, again, this is on a technicality. You want to say you weren't killed by a woman? Well, technically, you were run through by your armor bearer, but 
everybody knows that he was killed by a lady dropping a stone on his head. And so this is a shameful death for him. This is a shameful, not because there's something inherently shameful about a woman doing this, but because he is a warrior and he's a man. And this is not, this shouldn't be controversial to say, but men are stronger than women on average by a third, by some um, measurements. And so here is this mighty warrior king killed by a nobody, literally who's not named. He's killed by a nobody who's a lady, he's going to be much weaker than him, who drops a stone on his head. That's why this is a shameful death for him. So this kind of nobody from Shechem is killed by, an, who has this, this prideful rise, this arrogant rise, is then destroyed. And all of this is God's work. Yes, this lady probably had it in her own mind or somebody else gave her the idea of picking up that stone and dropping it. But God was working even through those circumstances to bring about his plan of somebody picking up a stone and dropping it on somebody's head. His pride was his downfall. And he, he died there. Not, as a, not like Jeroboam as a, a man who Baal couldn't contend against. Jeroboam, the one who worked, um, who, who, who did God's will, the God Baal couldn't contend against him, couldn't take him out because he was on God's side. Abimelech, taken out by a lady dropping a stone on his head. And so God delivered on his plan. God, thus God returned all the evil of Abimelech on which he had committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. So God comes through and delivers. They get their comeuppance. Justice wins, we think. We, we, and we love it when we see the bad guys lose and the good guys win. Where there is justice and fairness. But as I said before, even Abimelech wasn't too far from the grace of God. God will be just and fair no matter which way we go. Whether we, whether we want Jesus to give us his righteousness, in which case God's justice was poured out on Jesus on our behalf, or you can front up to God and try taking on God's justice for you on your own terms. And that won't go down very well. Like Abimelech who set himself against God and God's people, so it is like for us if we try and set ourselves against God and God's people. So I encourage you to repent to turn to God, to turn away from your, your aspirations of shameful gain. Turn to God and, and submit to Him and find rescue and refuge in Him. Let me just end with this comment. Abimelech leaves us hungering for a good king, a king who has rightful claim to the throne, one who uses his power and strength to protect people, one who who also suffered a shameful death, but his shameful death was not to expose his, uh, the problems with him. His shameful death was deliberately subversive in order to bring victory. His self-sacrificial death was for the deliverance of God's people. That's the kind of king that we want. And that's the kind of king that we presently have reigning at the right hand of the Father. Let's thank him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now as our King, the rightful King, 
the king who brings life, the king who protects his people, the king who, who um, is trustworthy. We thank you, Lord, for King Jesus, who is ruling and reigning presently. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that you hold out to us. Please, Lord, help us to live and remain in that grace, to live loyal to you, to serve you with all that we have. And Lord, as we see Abimelech's in our day and age, uh, please, Lord, help us not to fear, but to have our trust resting in you, not the work of our own hands or um, other armies and powers. But Lord, please keep our trust in you at all times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.